0: One thing I've noticed recently, I probably should have noticed it a while ago, is this awkward moment where I'm baptizing someone here in church, or I'm getting ready to preside at someone's wedding, or we have a new member weekend and we're bringing people up and introducing them. There's this awkward moment where I've realized I've never heard this person pronounce their last name. I think we're very much a first name kind of a church. In fact, we, even me and Ben, like we introduced ourselves, Pastor Matt, Pastor Ben. Um, I, I think the reason we as a culture tend to do that more these days is because when you're on a first name basis, it's like you're on the same level. And, you know, Ben and I also want to communicate that. Even though we're way above you in reality, we want to communicate that we're on the same level as you because we want to connect with you a little bit better. But there's always that awkward moment, like when I'm getting ready for, in fact, some of you have probably experienced this. If you've had your child baptized here at North Cross, I come up to you before the service, and I'm like, how do you pronounce your last name? And, and it's just this little awkward moment where I realize I've never actually heard their last name pronounced. And I was thinking about it, and what I know is that probably most of you have never even heard my last name pronounced. So my last name is this. Should we say it all together? One, two, three... You guys are really good, actually. Good. I've heard it's been slaughtered throughout the years. It, I've heard Ewert. I've heard Ewert. I think Ewert is pretty cool. It sounds French or something, but it is Ewert. It is Ewert. And the reason it's pronounced Ewert, not Ewert, is because of where it comes from. I think this is fascinating. If you ever want to, you know, engage someone in conversation, just ask them, "What, what does your last name mean?" And where does it come from? But my last name is actually, uh, the roots of it are Scottish. It's Scottish. And the, it, uh, most, people think, most people think that it's at its root, it, it came from you herder or you steward. In other words, you is lamb for all the kids out there. So uh, someone who takes care of sheep or lambs. And what would be the modern day term for someone who does this? A shepherd. You know what another name for a shepherd is? Pastor. So I'm like Pastor Matt Pastor. That could be my name if if we were in Scotland. So that's cool. That's cool. But there's actually another explanation for where my last name might have come from. The, The theory out there, this is kind of like the old legend, is that my last name centuries ago used to be Stuart, a more common last name. And the legend goes like this, that one of my ancestors, generations, generations ago, they did something so bad. Their last name was Stuart, but they did something so bad that no regular punishment would do. They were so evil, so murderous. We're not sure what it is, but they were so bad that the punishment was that from future generations, we should no longer be known as Stuart, but they said, you must remove the saint from Stuart so that you are now known as Ewart. Not all of you get that. Just ask someone after the service what that means. Remove the saint from Stewart. Now, as I bring that up, I just want you to know that's a legend. So my name really means you herder or you steward, and I'll just go with that. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. But I think you can tell a lot about a person based on their last name, and depending on which version of my name you go with, you might have a little bit of a different impression of me. Like if you came up to me, and you say, hey, Pastor Matt, get this. My great-great-great-grandfather, he was a United States president. I'd be like, wow, I respect you more now. Just knowing that your, your great-great-great-grandfather was someone so important. If you came up to me and said, hey, my great-great-great-grandparents were murderous cannibalists, I might look at you sideways a little bit and watch my back when, when I'm around you. But I think we all naturally do this, that you kind of look at your family of origin or your ancestors, you kind of get a feel for who they were and what they were, and that kind of forms who you are as a person. Some of you might have experienced that this week at Thanksgiving. You got together with your family, with your relatives, and someone said, "'Why aren't you more like this or that?' And maybe they put some pressure on you to change who you are. So I think we might just need to do a little bit of counseling together just for a moment. This, we'll get this out of the way, then we'll get into the message. Uh, the counseling thought is this, that you don't have to let the people you came from determine the person you become. Now, now that the counseling is over, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And, and no one else do we see this more than Jesus. Today we're starting a brand new series called Unexpected Christmas. And to be honest, I'll give you a peek behind the the curtains here, we had a different name and a different idea for this series until a week ago. As we were drawing up the, the last details for it, we said, you know what? There's this other idea, there's this other thing we could go with called Unexpected Christmas, and we decided to run with this because we know that this Christmas is going to be so unexpected for many of us. Like, we don't know how to plan for it. We don't know what to do. Or maybe some of us do, but most of us don't. But the interesting thing is that when you look at the original Christmas, the first Christmas where Jesus was born, there were so many details that were unexpected, In fact, I would put it this way. The first Christmas was anything but expected. There were so many things that seemed to be going in one direction. But then, as things developed, they went in an entirely different direction. And in this series, we're going to look at what some of those main details were. Like a virgin giving birth. The king of heaven coming to a poor family. Shepherds being the first ones to announce the birth of this child. There's so many unexpected elements of that first Christmas. But the more we look into it, this is actually what we should expect from God. When you go through a season of life where you're meeting things that are unexpected, like you thought your plans were good, you thought God was blessing the path you were on, but all of a sudden, unexpectedly, things started to change This is what should come to your mind, that when unexpected things happen, perhaps it's because God is doing something unimaginable. Perhaps he's carrying out a plan that you couldn't even imagine, and so the way to get you there has to be unexpected. And isn't that true of Christmas? The eternal Son of God, placing himself within space, matter, time, and energy, making himself finite... That is something unimaginable, and so we should expect things to be unexpected. I put it this way on on the sheet if you're taking notes. God did what nobody expected in order to accomplish what nobody could imagine. And as we look at the details of Christmas, what I know is that as we look at some of the unexpected elements of that first Christmas, it will give you a greater appreciation, not just for Christmas, which I know it will, but also a greater appreciation for those moments in your life where you're wondering what God has planned for you and when life, your life, goes down an unexpected path. So that's what we're going to do in this series. We're going to see some of the unexpected things that God had to do in order to do what was unimaginable for us. And as we start today, we're actually going to start before the Christmas story. As a first-century disciple named Matthew sat down to write down an account of Jesus' life, he started with a genealogy of Jesus. In fact, I'll just open up Matthew 1, verse 1 right now. Matthew wrote this. He said, this is the genealogy of Jesus. He wrote out by saying, before I tell you the story of how he was born or what he did, I have to tell you the family history that he came from. And you won't believe some, what some of his ancestors did. Now, before we... Show you what Matthew wrote, some of the ancestors. Uh, a couple of disclaimers. Uh, first of all, we're going to look at an extensive um, ancestry of Jesus, way too much that we can do in one day. Uh, the other disclaimer is that we're actually planning eventually, we're not sure when, to take this idea and break it down into a series where we look at specific people in this list and blow it up, magnify it a little bit more on a weekly basis. Uh, so those are the disclaimers. Um, the other thing is that before we can get into what Matthew wrote, we have, have to understand who Matthew was and why he was writing the things he was writing. It's, it's cool how God uses different people in the Bible to write things from a different perspective, a different look. And that was definitely the case with Matthew. So here's who Matthew was, and here's, here's why it was expected that he would start with a genealogy of Jesus. So Matthew was a Jew, In other words, he could trace his genealogy back to Abraham. That's what all Jews could do. And as such, Matthew recognized that as he wrote to fellow Jews who maybe hadn't heard the story of Jesus yet, the first thing he had to do was show them that Jesus was a Jew also. Because the Messiah, the Savior was promised to be one of Abraham's descendants. So Matthew knew. Before he could even tell people the story of Jesus, he had to demonstrate that Jesus was eligible to actually be considered as the Messiah or the Savior of the world. Matthew was a tax collector. As you look through the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, sometimes he's referred to by his original name, which was Levi, But uh, his given name after he became a Christian was Matthew. And as a tax collector, Matthew recognized the importance of legal terms and following the letter of the law. And as a tax collector, there was importance in understanding genealogy so that you could know who's taxed what and who is the father of whom. Because as we all know, when tax season comes, you need to know who your dependents are. So Matthew understood the importance in all the legal um, elements of the genealogy. And then finally, Matthew was a disciple of Jesus, not because he decided to follow Jesus, but because one day Jesus came up to his tax collector booth and said, Matthew, Levi, why don't you come follow me? So Matthew, Levi, he, he left his tax collector booth and started to follow Jesus. And as such, Matthew had a first hand glance at what a first century Jew would experience as they recognized that this Jesus was not just a rabbi but he was the one who was promised to be the savior or the messiah of the world. So we're going to flesh that out a little bit more. We're going to talk more about the promise God made to Abraham. We're going to look at all those things, but this is the general backdrop for who Matthew was and why he knew it was important to to start with a genealogy of Jesus. So what I'll say is this. It was expected that he would write a genealogy. As as he would write an account, it was expected that he would include this as the first thing in his book. But here's the twist. The details he included with it were completely unexpected. It was not just um, a standard genealogy doing what he was required to do. But as he went through those factual details he added some things he didn't have to add. The legal ancestry would always follow through the father. That's how they did it in those days. Yet Matthew saw fit to include several of the mothers as well. Not just to clarify who the family was, but to remind the Jews reading this of the story behind Jesus' family history. So we're going to look at some of those Details that Matthew added to his ancestry and see what he was up to by doing so. So here's what he wrote. This is going to be really exciting, by the way. Abraham. (laughs) We're not going to read through the entire thing, don't worry. But here's what a Jew would see as they read this for the first time Abraham was the father of Isaac. And right there, from a Jewish perspective, you would have to stop and say, that was a miracle. The rest of this genealogy should not have happened. Abraham and Sarah were too old to have a child, and yet God, through a miracle, allowed them to have a child, and they named him Isaac. So just keep that in mind. This whole thing started because of a miracle birth. They gave birth to Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And as Jews would read this, they would come to mind the stories of Joseph in Egypt, how Joseph was sold by Judah and his other 10 brothers. And he spent many years in Egypt and finally was able to help his brothers and a lot of people because Joseph was in a position to help during a time of famine. So many details that are brought up, just as Matthew mentions, and his brothers. (laughs) And then he says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. And so far, this is pretty cookie cutter. Like, this is what you would expect from a genealogy. But then Matthew has to go and add a detail that would help us remember Judah in not so great of a light. So here's the thing. Judah, as the oldest child, as the oldest brother, he did some bad things. He didn't stop the brothers when they sold Joseph, the youngest, as a slave. So, you know, he kind of got that going against him. But ultimately, at the end of Judah's life, what we see is a man who took ownership of his indiscretion. He took on himself the burden of making things right for selling his brother Joseph as a slave. He showed up to his father and he said, this is what I've done. It was, ra- it was bad. I accept full responsibility. It may be my life for his. Judah was the hero of the brothers. But Matthew doesn't want you to remember that. What Matthew wants you to remember is how Judah had a couple of sons, Perez and Zerah. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, but their mother was Tamar. I don't hear any gasping. (laughs) Here's why this is gasp-worthy. See, he didn't have to add this line, but he did. And as he did so, the Jews, as they looked at that, they would have been reminded of an awful, awful story. Tamar was not the wife of Judah, Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah. If you want to read the whole account, just go to Genesis chapter 38. I will not give you all the details because I keep things rated PG and Genesis 38 is rated R. Rated R for real. It gets real in Genesis 38. Long story short, what happened was, according to the Jewish custom, it was the oldest son. It was of utmost importance that he carry on the family name. And if the oldest son dies before he can have any children, it's the duty of his next oldest brother to step in as a substitute, temporary substitute, to help his dead brother's wife have a child. That's what we see with Judah's sons. Judah has three sons. The first one dies before having a child. So the second son, I'll skip the details, he also dies before um, that uh, first brother's wife is able to have a son. And Judah says, I'm not going to let my third son die the same way. This woman is killing all my sons. And so Judah basically tells Tamar, you're going to live in my household, but you'll never be with anyone again. So long story short, Tamar deceives Judah. She dresses up as a prostitute. He enlists her services. And it becomes very publicly known that Judah got Tamar pregnant. And it was a moment of red face, for sure. A moment of humility, of humbling. Matthew did not have to add that detail. He could have just said Judah was the father of Perez and and Zerah. But Matthew is making a point. As he speaks to his Jewish audience, he's reminding them that where the Messiah comes from is anything but perfect. We're going to see him add a few more details here as we we go on. So uh, here's how the story continues. The first word there, it's not salmon. We're not talking about fish. It's Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And if you're familiar with your Sunday school Bible history, Rahab is a familiar name. Rahab, we're we're, we're not sure exactly who she was. All we know is that she was not a Jew. She was not a descendant of Abraham. But all we know her as is her profession. She was a prostitute. Rahab, the prostitute. What her, her name to fame was that she helped the Israelite spies when it was time for them to start conquering their new land in Israel, and she helped them scope out Jericho, and she gave them a place to hide while they were being sought out. And as, as you think about that, Matthew's adding that name into the list. One of Jesus' ancestors was a prostitute by trade. He didn't have to add that in there, but he wants to tell a story. And the story gets better. So, uh, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, and then Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And this is a really cool uh, story of the Bible. This isn't like one of those, ooh, grotesque stories, but this is like a story that warms your heart. In fact, if you want to read Ruth this week, that's an awesome book of the Bible. It's really short. It's got a storyline. It's compact. And it tells a story of compassion. It tells a story of selfless sacrifice. It tells a story of a man named Boaz, or Obed, Boaz. It tells the story of a man named Boaz who reaches out and invests himself to help Ruth, even though he didn't have to. It's this beautiful story of redemption. But at the heart of it, Ruth and her mother-in-law, you see a story of two poor widows. So in Jesus' family history, you have, yes, the great, mighty, powerful kings, but you also have the poor and the widowless. You have prostitutes. You have people who enlisted prostitutes. You have all sorts of family history in Jesus' background. But finally, we get to the point where those Jews in the first century would have said, ah, here, Matthew cannot say anything bad. But here's what Matthew did. So Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse, finally, the father of King David. King David, the best king. For for the first century Jews, their dream was that God would finally send this Messiah and that this Messiah, this new king who would establish the kingdom of Israel again, he would be this great military power. He'd be this passionate leader. They were looking for someone who is just like David who could come in and make their lives better again. They were so done with the Romans holding them down. They were so done with the Roman Empire taxing them however they wanted. They were looking for someone like David. And so Matthew could have totally played into that. He could have said, you know, Jesse was the father of King David who defeated Goliath just in case you forgot what King David did as a young, as a young teenager. he you could have said he was the father of King David who established military supremacy. Uh, king David was the great military commander who really established the border of Israel in his day. He could have said King David, the one who was a, a shepherd king, someone who was gentle and compassionate and yet strong and a good leader. He could have used any of these things, but Matthew said none of that. Here's what Matthew did. David was the father of Solomon. He skips all over the great details and he just says who his son was. His son was Solomon, whose mother, and he could have said his mother was Bathsheba because that would have been accurate. And even with that word, that name, people would have brought to mind how Solomon was born. Here's the story. So when when King David was in the prime of his military campaigns, he was doing so well that he didn't even have to go with his army. He stayed at home. He stayed in Jerusalem while his army went off and did the fighting for him which put him in isolation, which put him in a weak spot. He's up on his castle one night, up in his palace, and he's looking over all of his kingdom and looking over Jerusalem, and he happens to see a woman bathing. He likes her, and so he tells his servant, hey, go get that woman and bring her here for the night. And the servant says, sir, you know that's someone's wife not just someone, that's Uriah's wife. Uriah is out in the battlefield where you should be fighting a battle you should be fighting. David says, bring her to me. So, servant brings her. She does as the king pleases, and she becomes pregnant. When, it, when he realizes she's pregnant, he tries to pin it on Uriah that he was the one who got her pregnant, and when that didn't work, he had Uriah killed brought in Bathsheba as his own wife. And that was the moral low low point of King David's life. That was the moment where he crashed. And of all the moments for Matthew to bring up, he just had to go there. But he didn't just say, this was Bathsheba's, or this was Bathsheba, he said, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. It's like he's taking this detail and he's just grinding it in So that the reader can get the full effect of what he's trying to say. What the people wanted was a king like David. And what Matthew is showing them is that you don't want a king like David. You don't want a Messiah like David was. And we need someone different too. As you go back to verse 1 he gives us a hint about what we should really be looking for. He said, so this is the genealogy of Jesus, whom I say, I declare is the Messiah. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. And that phrase, son of David, gives us a little hint here. We're not looking for a, a Messiah who is like David. The thing that God wanted his people to look for was someone who was a son of David. A king, yes but not a king like David. Someone who had a kingdom, yes, but not a kingdom like David. Someone who was powerful, yes, but not powerful like David. You see, they were to look for the son of David, not someone who was like David, but they got focused instead on looking for someone who was like David, who could give them political victory and political boundaries and a new kingdom of Israel where they would not have to pay taxes anymore. They were looking for someone like David. And I think sometimes we look for the same God, where were you when this happened? Where was your power? Where was your glory? You could have changed my life. You could have changed my loved one's life. You could have made things differently. I wanted someone like David who could have changed my life and made it better. But God is more interested in giving you the son of David, who maybe won't fix the circumstances of this life, but he sure fixed the circumstances of your eternity. Just like those first century Jews, we needed the son of David, not someone like David. And when it comes to Christmas, this is the perfect moment for us to refocus our mindset on what it is we expect this child to do, what it is we expect God to do in this season of our life. To restore normalcy to our patterns, that's not what God is there for. He's there to restore life for your eternity. We needed the son of David, not someone like David. And as Matthew continues here in verse one, there's, there, I didn't talk about the other person whose son he is, But uh, as as Matthew goes on, he adds one more detail that I think is so interesting because it really bookends Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and then the very end of Matthew's book in chapter 28. He he begins and ends really with the same idea, which is really easy to miss if you don't look for it. But here's what he says. This is the son of of David, yes, but also the son of Abraham. And what was significant about this is that not just genealogy-wise that he was an ancestor of Abraham, which all the Jews were, but significant because of the promise God had made to Abraham. And this was something that was so shocking for Abraham and, and shocking for people at that time. But the promise God made to Abraham was not that Abraham would be blessed and that he would be rich and wealthy. But the promise given to Abraham is that all nations would be blessed through him. Abraham, I will make you a father of many nations. But more than that, all nations on earth will be blessed through you. And for centuries, people were waiting for that one descendant of Abraham who would make that happen. Not a king like David, a son of David. And as you look at the end of Matthew, as you fast forward to the very end where we see Jesus addressing his closest disciples one final time, Jesus reveals to them that the promise made to Abraham to bless all nations had come true. Here's how Matthew ends his story. Jesus told his disciples, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Go to all people and share with them the good news that death has been defeated, that a new kingdom has been established, not a kingdom like David's, but a kingdom made by the son of David, a kingdom that's not of this world. And the interesting thing, too, is as you look at the genealogy of Jesus, it really answers for me and for you who he is the king of. As you look at his genealogy, really all the nations were represented in Jesus' genealogy. I'm not talking about countries and tribes necessarily, although you do get some of those, like uh, Ruth, Rahab. They were not of Jewish ancestry. But what you see here are all the different kinds of people. You see poor widows. You see lonely people. You see great kings. You see horribly rotten kings. You see prostitutes. You see people who employed prostitutes. You see a wide variety of people on the moral and ethical scale. People who lived their lives righteously and people who did not. And the point is this. As people were to walk up to Jesus with their personal sins, or as he were to confront them with their sins, it's not like he could be surprised by anything. Like if you, if you were in the first century and you came up to Jesus and you said, hey Jesus, I just need to confess to you to some things and they're pretty bad, I'm just gonna warn you. And if, if you told them to Jesus, he would not blink an eye. I've seen all that, he would say. It's in my family history. It's where I came from. That's the kind of people that I came from. It's all written, it's all, anyone can see it. You can just stop with Abraham to see most of the sins that you're declaring to me right now. But here's the cool thing. The the people that Jesus came from did not define him. The people that Jesus came from really the kind of Jesus that people came for. You see him throughout his life interacting with the widows, pointing to them as models of faithfulness and belief. You see Jesus pointing to prostitutes, and saying, your sins are forgiven, now go sin no more. You see Jesus turning to great rulers and pointing at them as sly foxes. You see Jesus pointing to all sorts of different kinds of people and being in their presence. And as Matthew would know, he even came up to tax collectors who were loved by no one, And Jesus said, why don't you come follow me? The kind of people Jesus came from were the kind of people Jesus came for. And what I want to close with is a way that you can apply that truth to your life this week. Now, there's a couple things that might get in the way of this application, so I want to bring them up, and then I'll give you four final words for number four. So the two things are um, this idea. First of all, God doesn't want to be with someone like me I know that uh, with our audience, both in the room and online, we get a wide variety of people. Some people have been in church their whole lives. Some people might be checking out church for the first time. And you might be thinking, I don't know if God really wants to be with someone like me. I think I need to clean up my life a little bit first and then maybe, you know, <laughs> see, see what he thinks. The thing with Jesus is that he, he, he wants to be with people like you. He came from the kind of people like you, and he, want, he came for people like you, and we see that practiced in his life. The way that he loves you is not based on who you are and what you've done. The way he loves you is based on the forgiveness he gives to you. Does God want to be with people like you? Yes. If he didn't want to be with people like you, Abraham would not be known. He would have been a single man with no children, but instead God started the miracle with Abraham and Isaac, and God continued that family line all the way to Jesus. God wants to be with people like you. And here's the other part. If you have been in church for a while, if you are a Christian, you might think to yourself, well, God wants no part in this part of my life. Maybe there's a part of your life that to you, at least internally, is kind of filled with guilt. It's filled with shame. It's filled with I know I need to fix this, but I don't want to fix this, so I'm just going to ignore it, and God can't have it. And you're thinking to yourself, as long as I do that, I'll be fine. I can just keep living my faith, and things will be good. Here's what I want to share with you. God wants every part of your life, not so that he can judge you and condemn you for it. Jesus did not come to this world to judge and condemn people. He came to forgive. He came to give new purpose and new life. And this part of your life that you've been ignoring, it's been sapping your strength. And God says, would you let me in? Would you open it up? And as we saw sinners in the first century opening up to Jesus and sharing with them what what they had done, not once does he say, get away from me, that's gross. He says to them, daughter, your sins are forgiven. And he condemns those who condemn sinners. Does God want to be part of this part of your life? Yes, yes. So to wrap things up, there's four words I want you to remember. Summarizing all of this genealogy from Matthew chapter 1, if I could summarize it into four words, this is what I would do. And if these are the only four words you remember from today, I will be content with that, knowing that I've done my job. It's this. Jesus is for you. He came from the kind of people that are the kind of people like you. But He came for the kind of people that he came from. And as you think about this miracle of Christmas, there's a lot of unexpected details throughout the rest of the story. But the first unexpected thing we see is the kind of people Jesus came from. But the good news is that all those people are the kind of people that he came for. So let's close today with a prayer. Dear Father in Heaven, with a a group of people, no matter how big it is, there's always a wide variety of life experiences, always uh, our personal feelings of being let down, the disappointment, expectations not being met. I know that uh, Christmas plans are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the way life might be changing in this season, and I don't want to trivialize that. But I hope that what we can do in this series is to find hope and purpose in knowing that sometimes when things defy our expectations, when things go unexpectedly, it's because you have something unimaginable that you are doing. And that was so true of that first Christmas. We can never wrap our heads around the fact that the Son of God became flesh and dwelled among us. And we would think that the people he came from would be holy and good and perfect but we see that is not the case the kind of people he came from were not perfect but those were the kind of people he came for so I pray that that would give us hope and peace this Christmas and always knowing that regardless of what's in our family history or in our personal history we have this simple truth to hang our hope on that Jesus is for me he is for us now and forever. Amen.